Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our podcast. This is the 25th anniversary of Women's Mental Health Special Interest Group. The aims of the Women's Mental Health Special Interest Group are twofold. One is to promote the mental health services for women and their families. And the second is to enable women psychiatrists to achieve their potential, to have a voice and to have fulfilling careers. If you think about it, these two aspects are like two sides of the same coin. We know that when women psychiatrists have a voice and when they are in positions where they can make a difference and they are supported, this then enables them to make changes within the services to provide best care for their patients. We are all women psychiatrists and we want to reflect on the generic aspects of our careers as women in psychiatry and our work with our patients and also our own personal reflections. So let's do introductions. I'm Bina. I'm a consultant psychiatrist and psychotherapist working in Lincolnshire Partnership Foundation NHS Trust. I'm also one of the co-chairs of the Women's SIG. Hi, I'm Ruth Reed. I'm the other co-chair of the Special Interest Group. I'm a consultant child and adolescent psychiatrist and I work part time across two teams. Uh, Joe. Hi there, my name's Joe, Joe Bowen. I run the Extra Stress Clinic. I'm a psychiatrist and I'm on the um, this um, in this group. It's a wonderful group to be in. I um, have a special interest in stress in doctors and in women doctors, and I have a special interest in treating uh, trauma, psychological trauma and anxiety. Lovely to be here. Yes, I'm, I'm Philippa Greenfield. I'm a consultant general adult psychiatrist working in Camden and Islington um, NHS Trust and I'm the finance officer of the um, Women Mental Health Special Interest Group. Uh, so hello, I'm Julia Barber. I'm an ST6 registrar in general adult psychiatry currently working in Nottinghamshire. So if we start with the careers of women in psychiatry, in psychiatry, we always start with the past history because it helps to understand the context. And it's really important not to um, dismiss the past or sweep it under the carpet. It's important for us to remember the past. Historically, we've had enormous challenges as women gained an entry into psychiatry and subsequently found a place in psychiatry. It's important not to forget this. Dr. Kate Lovett, the Dean of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, has outlined these challenges and difficulties that women in psychiatry had very eloquently in her brilliant talk, Where Were All the Women? In 1871, the Honorable Henry Maudsley stated in his article, Sex in the Mind and Education, that the education, the higher education of women would be detrimental to their own health. And if they pursued education, it would impair their reproductive functions, cause loss of menstruation, infertility, underdeveloped breasts, and an inability to breastfeed. He was a man of his times. He was, however, also the president of the Medical Psychological Association, which was a forerunner for the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Women have historically had very little support and encouragement in taking up careers in psychiatry. 
Dr. Eamon Bowman, who's one of our 25 women heroes, sent me an article that she wrote for the Irish Times in 1981. She mentioned an anecdote in which apparently at St. Mary's Hospital in London in 1916, a major decision was taken to admit women doctors into training. And he replaced the written exams with an interview with himself in which excellence at games was a prerequisite for entry. By 1924, the admission of women were completely stopped. If you look at the history of our own women's special interest group, our founder, Anne Cremona, after the birth of a child, was refused permission to job share the consultant post that she previously carried out for 10 years, despite the intervention of the BMA and her identifying a number of psychiatrist colleagues who were interested in job sharing with her. The wisdom of the day was apparently that no woman doctor could carry out the responsibility of an adult consultant psychiatrist putting in the long hours required whilst also caring for a large family. Comments such as part-time work means part-time commitment were also apparently very frequently made. At that time, flexible working was already a new concept. Only a few small number of part-time consultant posts were available in specialties such as child and adolescent mental health. Dr. Cremona decided that the only solution was to resign her full-time post and retrain, retrain completely as a child psychiatrist. This situation was brought to the attention of our first female president of the Royal College of Psychiatry, Dame Fiona Caldicott, who encouraged her to continue her career in her chosen specialty and to set up a special interest group within the college for women psychiatrists. This led to the formation of the Women's Mental Health Special Interest Group in 1996. If we come to the present in 2021, it is tempting to look at the visibility of women in psychiatry and think, yes, we have made it. But we just have to look at the data, the gender pay gap, career progression of women, allocations of clinical excellence award, and know that it's still not a level playing field at all. We still have a long way to go to have gender equality. If you look at the mental health of women with the pandemic, we know that women have experienced an increase in domestic violence. We know that women who experience domestic violence have an increased risk, a threefold increased risk of developing serious mental illness. We know that we have a long way to go with establishing trauma-informed services across the country. We, so we still have a long way to go with making our services responsive to women's mental health needs. The journey of women in psychiatry and the work that we do has, however, not just been one of struggles, but we've had tremendous success and made lots of progress and we've come a long way and we've overcome lots of obstacles. On our 25th anniversary, we really want to celebrate the accomplishments of women in psychiatry, both past and present. People like Dr. Helen Boyle, who became the first president of the Medical Psychological Association in 1939. Oh my, she was such an 
exceptional woman who's, uh, who apparently had triple qualification as a surgeon, as a physician, and as a psychiatrist. She was a woman far ahead of her times, and she spoke about concepts such as early intervention, peer support workers, rehabilitation in psychiatry as early as 1905. We sadly recently lost our first woman president, Dame Fiona Caldicott. She was our first woman president who truly broke the glass ceiling and who made tremendous contribution to psychiatry. Apparently six weeks prior to her becoming the Dean of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, she lost her son Richard, who was age 19, in a car crash. However, she decided to use her pain to propel her into making enormous contributions in psychiatry. We have gone on to have other amazing women presidents, Professor Sheila Hollins, Professor Dame Sue Bailey, Professor Wendy Byrne. We have had three women deans and several other women leaders who've been trailblazers in psychiatry. This includes past chairs of the Women's Mental Health Special Interest Group, Professor Mary Robertson, Dr. Fiona Mason, Dr. Nicola Byrne. Currently, 45% of psychiatrists are women, women from different backgrounds, different grades, different subspecialties, who are quietly making enormous contributions in psychiatry. If we look at the Women's Mental Health SIG, we have 4,000 members and we have an excellent, engaged, committed executive team. We have 17 members on our executive team from different grades and seven of them are trainees. Ruth and I became co-chairs in November 2018. We met for the first time on the 21st of November 2018 in 21 Prescott Street, our college building. And when we spoke about what we'd like to accomplish, it was synchronicity because what was first on our agenda was our shared dream to celebrate frontline women psychiatrists from different backgrounds. And this has given birth to our Women 25 project. So this project has been a dream come true for both of us. On a very personal note, this work has personal meaning for me, given my own matriarchal upbringing and my own very close attachment to my mother who was a feminist. I must say that working on the project with Women 25 group, uh, the working group, Ruth, Philippa, Joe, Julia, Ilaria, like-minded women has been so much of fun. We've had a real sense of solidarity and sisterhood. I will now pass it on to Ruth to unveil the Women 25 project. Peter and I have a lot of shared interests, but um, the areas that we particularly started talking about when we first met were around um, women's leadership and how women are often quiet leaders within their teams, not necessarily putting themselves forward for recognition. Um, and we were also interested in complex trauma and in thinking about how people succeed in difficult circumstances. I guess personally, when I first started thinking about all this was um, during my second pregnancy, I'd been very unwell in both my pregnancies um, throughout them both and uh, lost a very large portion of um, time when I might have been doing uh, professional development goals. And they, I guess that sort of sent my career 
um, in a somewhat different direction from where it might have gone very unexpectedly. Um, and I was actually um, applying for one of the RC Psych um, awards, but at that point I couldn't even sit up. I was so unwell um, and uh, it was very, very difficult to fill the, the form in because I had very severe pregnancy sickness. Um, but I thought if I don't fill it in now, when will be the next time that I'm going to be able to put myself forward for one of these awards? I'm going to be on maternity leave. Um, after that, I anticipate that I'll come back working part time. Um, so it would probably realistically be several years before I would again be able to put myself forward for a um, RC Psych award. And that got me really interested in thinking about the level of disadvantage that we can experience when we take career breaks or when we experience illness or start working part time. It can become quite hard to um, showcase uh, what we're achieving. Um, so that was sort of my personal angle on how I got interested in how we measure success and achievement and whether we're really measuring the right things. I also got very interested in thinking about um, what achievement really means. Um, I think it's not always that difficult to have a lot of things accumulating on your CV if your life's going very smoothly. If your life isn't going smoothly, it's often an enormous success just to turn up at work and keep coming in every day through that. And I don't think we give anything like enough respect or recognition to women as they have major challenges in their personal lives or health or disability. Um, so, yeah, Fina and I started talking about it and really wanted to do something interesting to look at everything that was going on behind the scenes. And fortunately, we found uh, several other women who are all part of this podcast, apart from Ilaria, who can't join us today, um, whose energy has really taken this project forwards. So for the project, we really wanted to look at women who didn't previously have visibility or a national platform. And we looked out for women who were very respected within their local areas and teams, but who might not be known beyond that. Um, going back to the idea of quiet leadership, we believe that a lot of women are making enormous contributions in terms of teaching, um, support for trainees and support for their teams and um, clinical direct care of patients, which don't really get effectively measured and valued through the systems we use, such as CEAs. Um, so we've particularly tried to find those those women and represent them through this project. We've also included some women who are a bit better known, but who felt ready to share some of the backstory to their achievements, including um, sort of illness and um, disability at times, um, mental health difficulties. And we wanted to make sure there was space for their stories to be heard, too. Um, so we've developed various um, sort of multimedia outcomes to the project. There's the short film, which includes about half of our women, and we also have in-depth resources. So each woman has put forward a really detailed narrative of their career. And so there are 25 of those um, along each introduced via blog. So we were really excited to be able to have a celebratory project about women's achievements for our 25th anniversary, but we've tried to make sure that our presentations of women's careers are realistic. They aren't CV-based explorations, um, which are just a list 
of achievements. We really wanted to look at the how and why of success so that it would be instructive for other women and um, people who are coming up behind um, ourselves. So we've tried to avoid people honing in um, on lists of achievements and to really look in depth at why they made decisions that they did and what has helped them along the way. Um, at this point, it would be great to hand over to you, Philippa, to talk a little bit more about some of the um, relevant factors for women in psychiatry. Thanks, Ruth. And I wanted to start um, by talking, I suppose, expanding a little bit on the idea of, of that both you and Bina have spoken about, why it's so essential that we have women in, in the psychiatry workforce, um, and more importantly, why we have diversity in our workforce. Uh, because we absolutely need that diverse leadership and that perspective if we're going to be providing um, services for the diverse population um, that we serve. And arguably, we're really doing a disservice to those if, if we don't address that and don't have people representing different perspectives in our leadership and as doctors. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit, so before we maybe think a little bit more about what our workforce currently looks like, I wanted to, to think about some of the work that I do and my interest around domestic abuse and domestic violence, which I mean really does, and I think we could all agree, still is, is the sort of work that is, is driven within medicine and more widely by women and from the women's movements. And I wanted to talk a little bit about my work in, in that area and, and what's really driven that. Um, so I primarily, primarily work um, in community psychosis services in London. Um, and I suppose that work for me or what's led me to that work is really my interest in inequality. And that started, I mean, we can we can think, thinking back about our careers, about why all of our interests have started. But I suppose my first real taste um, of some of these issues was that before um, working as a doctor, uh, as quite a, a really um, sort of in my younger days working in the modelling industry. And it was at this point that I first really became aware or sort of confronted by what I now know to be a power imbalance, something I probably didn't recognise or understand at the time. And it was something that's really stayed with me and has very much interested me in my later work about what this was about. As a medical student, very early on in my medical student training, I then chose to undertake a special study module with Professor Jean Fader, who now is a consultant working, a professor working in Bristol um, University, but at the time was working clinically as a GP in Hackney. Um, with a special interest in domestic abuse. And it was through my work with him that I got the opportunity to work with women who were living in refuges in the time in Hackney and, and around Islington, and also to sit on the Marac, uh, the community Marac at the time. Um, I kept, this all came back to me about seven years ago, because at the time I was working, as I say, with an interest in psychosis in an early intervention service. And about seven years ago, I was tasked with a particular project because the early intervention service that I was working in in Islington was working with people who uh, presented after the age of 35 with psychosis. So people who presented at a later stage in life. And it was the first time uh, that, I, that something really started to make sense to me. What was very different about these, I would say largely women, because we know that women do present more frequently in later life with psychosis. And what was very different to the conversations I was having with my younger patients is that 
the women would be much more able to tell me what had happened to them and to uh, and maybe the people around them or themselves to say things were going well I had a life I had children I I was working and then something happened and whether it was described in these terms or not by the woman what I was seeing time after time was that these women were describing to me what had happened or part of what had happened to them was really around domestic experiences of domestic violence and sexual abuse and I was really seeing that time after time and um, what I would often often find from talking to them more often was actually these this wasn't the first time although they might be having it presenting to mental health services for the first time with new experiences this time often those experiences had been present in some form in early in their early life as well and I suppose what went on to interest me is that what women were bringing, what women were coming to services for derogatory voices, ideas of being followed. Well, these felt really quite understandable when you were thinking about the context of these women's experiences and what had happened to them. Um, and so it really brought a very different thinking and understanding to my work. And I suppose at this time, alongside wanting to present this and some of the findings I was preparing for research, actually what felt urgent to me as a clinician was that I really needed to upskill in this work. I needed to find out practically much more about domestic abuse uh, and how we respond in a very practical sense to that, uh, which I've continued to take every opportunity to do, but also um, to improve my understandings of trauma and here complex trauma. Um, and how, I suppose going on from that, how do we bring this understanding and this work to probably the most disadvantaged people that we see in our services? So the people with serious mental illness, uh, that severe mental illness that I work with, uh, who may not be able to, uh, maybe real barriers to communication and advocacy for themselves, which is what got me then further interested in this idea of trauma-informed approaches. And I can honestly say that the work that I have done around domestic abuse and domestic violence and, and more recently trauma-informed approaches has really, I feel, um, enriched uh, my clinical practice more than anything else I've ever done. Um, and I think never more can be said, as we've referred to, than during the current pandemic, when we've seen such a huge uh, increase in serious harms as a result of domestic violence and abuse. Um, and uh, something that we've absolutely urgently had to attend to. And I think, you know, and I just wanted to give some context to that. But I'd be really interested because, Ruth, you work as a child and adolescent psychiatrist with uh, particularly in an area for, for young people who've experienced um, sexual harm, as I understand, and, and Bina as a psychotherapist and working in a women's only inpatient service. I just wonder if there's anything that you wanted to, to, to mention and thinking about some of the themes I've brought up. I, I think so, Philippa. You, you, I work only with women. Um, I didn't plan to do that, but that's how it's evolved. And I absolutely, I find my work very meaningful, both as an inpatient psychiatrist and as a psychotherapist in the community working with women who've experienced complex trauma. I think, you know, I go on about history because I think history is so important. And I think the if taking a trauma-informed approach is absolutely central to the work that we have to do, and we really need to drive this forward because it's so it it, it I feel if we just use diagnostic 
criteria. It, it blames people. It says, what's wrong with you? You have a problem. You know, there's something not quite wrong with you. And if we, we need to change that narrative to seeing what went wrong with you, what happened to you that was wrong. And I think trauma-informed care helps us do that. And I think that's absolutely got to be central and it has, has to be, uh, it has to be, that's, it's got to be uh, the soul of the work that we do with women. And Ruth, I was interested because I, I think what I see with my older patients and my adult patients, as I say, sometimes is that people can self-report or tell me more about what's happened to them. And I I, I wonder um, how you find that in the service um, working with younger people and how it, it how you know you may have these conversations or what you might find about having these conversations with younger women. Well, I work in two services. One, as you mentioned, is a specialist service for um, young people and families after sexual harm. And the other service is uh, sort of all conditions in CAMS. But um, what is quite incredible is the degree to which the families in both services have experienced domestic abuse and multiple forms of adversity. And one of the things that um, that is so evident is how adversity and trauma really snowball and how much one event leads to other forms of adversity and the sort of cumulative impact of those um, on the whole family from all sorts of different angles is, is really enormous. But doesn't it feel fascinating then that we don't embed this more in our work or in our early training? Because I think we're all familiar with the ACE studies that were done. And exactly as you describe, Ruth, we find just from talking to our patients that these themes that we know, these themes are present of adversity and um, trauma. Um, but it absolutely isn't um, ingrained in our practice yet, or certainly in the way that we ask people about their experiences. Um, and I just think it's fascinating, we're all here saying that this is absolutely the core of our work, but yet we don't really feel we're in a um, a, a workplace that um, fully recognises or, or um, thinks about that in everything that we do. I agree. And in the past um, couple of years, I've been teaching foundation doctors on the impact of traumatic events and um, have also recently introduced a lecture for medical students. And there, there are similar developments going on across um, different medical schools and training programmes. So that that's exciting times. But in a sense, it's um, yeah. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that this hasn't happened earlier. But it does come back to this question, doesn't it? Because I think that we do feel, as I said, this work in particular still does seem to be driven largely. I certainly know when I go to training events, and we've all spoken about this before, that actually when these events, when these topics are spoken about, they're largely attended by women. And I think this work is something that has really been driven by women. There are absolutely exceptions to that. Um, and I suppose it does come back to the point about the importance of women and, and women leaders. And um, you know, we're still in a real position, aren't we, that we don't have women represented at similar levels um, in the NHS in consultant roles. We still know that two in three consultant roles across medicine, so not particularly to psychiatry, are taken up by men. Um, and we also know that in academic medicine, that there is a real that women are really underrepresented at the very senior academic um, levels. And you know, I, I'm fascinated as to what, you know, to why. And, and it is a problem. We know we have 
uh, women entering medical school now at higher rates than men. I think 60% of, of, of um, medical students are women now. And that by the time we get to training even, so doctors in training, um, two thirds uh, of doctors in training are women. But I mean, I, I've seen it firsthand. And again, I, I've been a consultant now for six years, but even in my training, uh, which was not that long ago, I would still recognize that it was very strange as I progressed through my trainings, the women, the fantastic women around me would disappear, particularly in general adult psychiatry. Um, and I would think, well, what's this about? Where are they going? Why are they choosing other things? Why are they not continuing their career? And actually, I can say of the people that I started my psychiatry training with, the other women, I was, I think, the only one that, that continued through to become a general adult psychiatrist. And um, I think that it was probably only at that point, again, that I noticed at the point of then becoming a consultant. And I think the barriers that I faced at that point were, as we say, the consultants, you know, that largely that that are employing us and that are um, paying our services are largely are largely men. Um, and also going through my own experiences as a consultant of pregnancy and maternity leave gave me a better understanding, I feel, as, as to why that might be the case. Um, I, I suppose we've had positive movements, though, even since I've been a trainee. We've had the Me Too movement, which has had an effect on, you know, an impact on everybody. Um, we've had the mandatory um, gender pay gap reporting since 2018, although it hasn't been reported and put on hold during the pandemic. Um, at, unfortunately, in medicine shows that things in the two years of reporting shows that the gender pay gap increased from 50 to 17 percent men being paid 17 percent more than um women during that time um but we do have those things in place um and I, i'm very interested uh, we've got a, a real breadth of age um on the panel and I, i'm interested in people's experiences um and particularly julia was the youngest mem member on the panel today and who is still a trainee about to complete training and whether julia feels things that have changed for um trainees I think there is change, you know, but I think there is still a long way to go with this system, particularly around training is as that is my main experience so far. Um, I think the system is still so inflexible and so resistant in many ways. But the, what what we are seeing, like you say, with these movements that we're seeing is a more empowerment of women and that are a feeling that our voices are mattering more. Um, and the changes that we're seeing, this is important because the changes are largely from women and being led by women that benefit us and that's it's just so important and like you say I'm coming to a stage in my career where things are going to be changing but also as currently I'm pregnant again it's another thing I'm thinking wow things are going to be changing in amazing ways but also is this going to mean that there are barriers that are going to be increasingly stacked against me and like you say it just seems that there is somewhere along the way, particularly in training, where we seem to lose women. And this has been a common theme in a lot of the narratives that we've had from our 25 women as well, is the struggles through the journey to get where we are. And some of the most visible reasons, I feel, do st still remain with this sort of issue about rigidity and how the training system and career system responds to the way we enter our careers. Then. The ones that you hear time and time again is the problem with less than full time working, which is still predominantly women, because the, the main reason people are less than full time training at the moment is caring responsibility 
which normally comes down to women. And I, I've sat in these meetings where I've been more of a backseat passenger so far, hearing just, you know, male leaders of the training programme blaming women for blocking up training placements and also how frustrating it is to fit in these women trainees who are less than full time and who've gone off to get pregnant. And you can only feel burning anger really when you're sat faced with that. But also what happens is in these same meetings, these trainees are bringing up issues that they have, you know, issues that come up time and time again, like rotors and pay and how this is sorted. But there's never an answer is seems to be what you're faced with. It's always kind of, well, we don't know how to fit that and we'll have to look. But what's so obviously frustrating is it just keeps happening that way. Um, and it's what what I am seeing around me, thankfully, is people are trying to challenge this themselves. So it's unfortunately having to come down to the people who have had to carve their way through. Another issue being as, as Ruth was talking about, absences from work and returning to work. And there's no there's no real respect to how complex the reasons why somebody has been absent to work can be. And again, we women are having to sort this out ourselves and advise the career structures around us ourselves. And that's in ways that it is a bit depressing that we're having to do it ourselves, but it's also hopeful for me anyway, that I'm seeing that visible change. The, the kind of other it's the other reflection I have is that, you know, it's when you when it is systemic issues like this, it's it's not that hard work can overcome these obstacles. It's it's the this lack of understanding and a, and a, also like a kind of a bland unwillingness to understand as well as what it feels like, which is a resistance to the change. And that could just be so draining. I think a lot of the experiences in training can be draining, um, which leads me to kind of think a bit more about some of my own personal reflections about my own personal journey um, in psychiatry and through my training process. Because I've I've always been somebody who's really been wanting to work with women. It's a huge passion of mine. I come from a very matriarchal family, actually, which is probably where it comes from. And also a family where there has been struggles, particularly for the women in the family with mental illness. And it just really compels me towards this goal. But what what I really was surprised to find along my journey was this kind of part of ourselves as women that joins in with this system that is stacked against us. And really what came down for me was this issue with envy. And this is a really important issue in feminism. And certainly I have experienced where women can be hostile towards one another and women can put up blockades for each other. But what was really important for me was to realise where this was coming from myself and how inhibitory that was and how stuck I was getting and not progressing in the way I'd wanted to because of just how much that was building up. And I think that doesn't necessarily come from inside a person. It comes from a reaction of a person towards the system around them is my own, is my real reflection there. Um, And I think recognising this poisonous feeling and the guilt and shame in that was part of what became healing because it, it, where it becomes very relevant to training is that I feel training in medicine, it does it does come hand in hand with a lot of guilt and shame and humiliation 
um, which is built into the process. Not that there isn't also joy and brilliance and exhilaration in training, but there's also this part where we just expect the doctors to just get on with it and perform in front of each other and compete against each other and just give up everything and move to another city and to um, sacrifice. And And it's something that, you know, I worry that it becomes a really ingrained and internalised part of ourselves. And I was just wondering if anybody else in the panel had thoughts about that as well, or any other personal reflections about that. Just one thing to say, I mean, I think that what you're describing, um, Julia, is is the, the, the pathways, and I think this has been my experience, still the pathways for, and for training just still aren't designed for women. It doesn't feel they are. And the other thing is, uh, in terms of why women might behave in a certain way or might behave, I think one thing that doesn't help or that will, will help increasingly is having more women in senior roles. So more women as mentors, because I know for me that one of the most important things for me and actually why I probably have been able to continue in my career is finding women who have been more senior to me, who have understood these issues and have really guided me through. And I think that, you know, that that is something, again, that we have lacked. We've lacked women to create the system, but also the women to support us, to say there is a different way of doing things. We can do things in a different way. It's okay to bring different characteristics and a different perspective to have children, all of these things, and still be a doctor. And I think for me, that was a huge uh, it's been a huge challenge through my career to say it's okay to be you and to bring what is you to the to the career. You don't have to find a way to fit and do things in the way that other people do. Um, so I, I think that's sort of my take on, on, on maybe what you're saying. But it'd be interesting to hear what others have to say about that as well. Julia, I really, really loved your reflection. I really loved your reflection when you spoke about the internal experience of envy. Because I think as women, we are so uh, interconnected. We are quite sociocentric. We are made to be, we're not very armored. And actually, we are not very effective when we are armored. We are most effective when we have a sort of semi-porous membrane around us where we are able to be receptive to the people around us, where we are able to be receptive to that sense of connection. So when that works well, the, the the light side of that is, when I say light, I mean the brighter side of that, is that we are more empathic, we are more caring, we're able to connect and we are able to be more responsive. But the shadow side of that, of that socio-centricity and that's, is that we tend to compare and we do compare uh, ourselves with other women and sometimes that can lead to a sense of envy, as you said, and um, so the you know envy, um, and also a sense of self-denigration, feeling that we're not as good enough, and thinking and looking at the choices other women have made, and you know, um, sort of looking at ourselves as less than. And I think a part of our inner journey is to be very, very aware of that darker shadow side because it will exist. And it's a lifelong journey of trying to understand it and trying to sort of um, feel that, build that sense of I'm enough, I'm okay, I'm enough. 
and these are my life choices. This is what I want to do. This is my journey. Let me run my race. Let me find my track. Let me do what I have to do. I thought that was a brilliant reflection, both Julia, Bina, in fact, everyone. And, you know, as someone who hears women doctors' stories in a clinic, I reflect that actually it's these stories and we've been coming up with these our own personal stories today, which are deeply moving. I think that this whole business about what is hidden is vital to unveil. In the clinic that I've been running over the last six years, seeing women doctors, there have been trends that I've picked up. I mean, this is a period uh, stretching back from before the junior doctor strike, which was deeply stressful and conflictual for, for doctors and indeed, you know, for everyone. Um, and then very, very sadly, we've had um, quite a number of doctors take their own lives. Um, and actually, we know that women... Um, female doctors have a higher rate of suicide compared to the average rate for women. Uh, we've also now obviously gone through um, the, uh, well, still in the COVID pandemic. Um, during this time also, we've seen wellness programmes for doctors um, being created and being uh, resourced. But clearly, we we have a problem with what is hidden. What uh, value systems we um, are allowing in terms of care ethics in society now. The sorts of trends of 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 the sorts of things that that people um, that particularly women bring to my clinic, I think are very important to to as I say to unveil. There is this business of the so-called imposter phenomenon. Um, some people call it a syndrome, but I think it's more a phenomenon. And what's coming up there, and this is actually something which a lot of senior women doctors come with, um, perhaps su somewhat surprisingly, um, is that in these relatively high-functioning people, there is this sort of report that they don't feel they fit in, that they feel uh, that they have this terrible secret that uh, they cannot ever prove themselves to be good enough. And, you know, in more junior um, female doctors, um, it's perhaps not necessarily seen as a, an imposter phenomenon, but it's seen as a deep anxiety that, as many of the stories we've heard of today, um, you know, show that actually it doesn't feel a good landscape for women to be in at the moment, in medicine and indeed in society. Um, there is this business of stigma. There is um, a need for, uh, for example, the Doctor Support Network have put out a, an excellent campaign called And Me, which is trying to show that uh, doctors are humans who are suffering. And, you know, I think for women in particular, the suffering is very great now. And my hope is that the COVID pandemic will uh, further unveil the sorts of squeezed care problems that women are experiencing now. If it's not for themselves, it's as parents for their children, it's for children uh, for their parents. Um, and all of this is going on in a landscape where, where people, women feel actually very taken for granted. Um, so I think that whole landscape needs to change, you know, and I think that the value of our project, um, 25 Women, is that the stories of 25 women psychiatrists are being um, shown 
um, and are being celebrated for what they are. And what we do know is that there's room for a huge amount, I think, more listening to women's voices in terms of trauma with um, a little T or a big T, you know, the whole business about simple trauma for every person, every woman, right from actually before birth, where we know that adversity can, can happen well before birth, to really old age, you know, I'm the oldest person on the panel that, you know, I think that what we're missing is a whole lifetime of understanding half of the population much, much better than we do. You know, hormonal shifts are massive during that time for people. Um, and indeed, you know, the whole landscape, the whole complexity, you know, the whole business of how we do complaints uh, of conflict in society and, you know, what we're missing, not what we're seeing. So that's where I want, I've, I've, I, I really want, you know, I'm passionate about trying to, to change that landscape. So in thinking about this whole landscape of disempowerment for women and women not feeling like they fit in, feeling like this is a sort of hidden, terrible secret. Um, it's difficult to unveil for them, trying to find a way through. Of course, there are lots of individual issues, but in terms of themes, we do know that gender isn't the only issue to consider. Um, there are certainly other um, attributes, other experiences, which are very, very important to consider as well in terms of almost a sort of double whammy of uh, disempowerment uh, for women. And I think, Philippa, you've you've got um, some, some reflections on that too, haven't you? I, I agree, Joe. And um, I think we've spoken a lot, you know, obviously with the focus of this podcast about um, thinking about gender, thinking about women, but actually what we've maybe focused less on so far is thinking about um, different identities um, and thinking about, you know, when we talk about the pay, gender pay gap, we've spoken uh, about how that impacts women. But actually what we haven't spoken about is that we're still not reporting, man, there is no still no mandatory reporting of the ethnicity pay gap. But what we do know for women doctors, that black women doctors bear the worst in terms of the pay gap for doctors um, compared to, to everybody else. Um, also, when we're thinking about issues of women in society and the people that we uh, that access our services, we were talking earlier about domestic abuse. But again, we know that, um, and as was highlighted actually during the pandemic in a fantastically written report by Imkan, that actually the effects of domestic um, abuse are felt have been felt much more during the pandemic and prior to that um, by black women um, so we really need to be you know we do need to be thinking here we've been talking particularly about gender but we need to think about issues for people who are not you know for, for women who are not who are women but are, but there are also barriers for so if we think about the experiences of women of color, we are talking about a very heterogeneous group of people. And we're also talking about very different life experiences. So first generation immigrant women versus second generation immigrant women. First generation immigrant women are those like myself who come to this country after the age of 11. 
and second generation immigrants are, are those who were born and raised here. And the, the, there are different sets of uh, psychological and mental health problems are very, very different. So the first generation immigrant women struggle with issues like transition, loss, you're losing your own culture and you have to fit into your host culture. So issues with trying to assimilate into a different culture. Whereas the second generation women, they struggle with issues of identity being feeling sometimes like an outsider and grow, growing up in a culture which is very different and thinking about what is better and what is inferior and what is superior and so on. So the health problems are very different. And when we talk about the experience of doctors, we are th women of color have, especially if you're thinking about uh, first generation immigrants, we, are, we know that they do less, they are less successful in exams. And, uh, you know, if the exam results, the MRC psych exams, especially with the CASC, the clinical uh, assessment exams, they are less successful. And, and basically, uh, people of color come from sociocentric cultures. So we are very, very, uh, we are taught to worry about what other people think about us. So the sense of trying to, you know, uh, uh, taking, you know, a failure in an exam is not just an exam, it's a life event. So the sense of shame is very, very profound. I've seen trainees, I've seen colleagues who just completely, uh, their sense of self-esteem, their confidence, identity gets crushed after failing in exams and they lose the momentum and they they uh, don't make career progression and i i suppose that's the sort of issues there's a, such a sense of shame external shame and i think as women that's what we need to help them you know as women leaders that's what we want to help them with to understand and to say you know and, and i think the women 25 project is is trying to do that yeah and, and i suppose because it, it really does and i think one of the things about the project is it really does show that diversity but i think with what you're saying Bina, it really comes back to that idea about how important it is that we have diversity in our leadership so that we can support women from um well, su support women from different backgrounds with different experiences through their training um, and to go on a success in their careers, but also so that we're really able to provide services that um, that really do address and think about the issues for women across the board. Yes, absolutely, Philippa, but it's also redefining success. Success is not just not becoming a consultant, a medical director, and so on. It's about, you know, everybody's journey is different. And if someone's had a difficult journey, then it's having that self-compassion to say, okay, given my experiences, given my journey, I'm happy with what I've, uh, I've accomplished. And I am, you know, I'm not going to compare myself. I have that self-compassion. I'm going to nurture myself and find meaning with what I do. And that is success. And I suppose the 25 Project is to foster women who make those choices and celebrate those women and, uh, you know, foster a sense of self-compassion. I, I think that brings us to a, a beautiful ending. I, I just wish we, I mean, I think we could spend a whole day talking about these issues. Um, so on our, you know, at, at, at this time when we are celebrating 25th, um, our 25th anniversary, 
I think we look back with a sense of we are not where we were, but it also feels we are not where we should be. And it feels that we, but we are on a journey and hopefully a journey of, as um, as Julia said, uh, a very authentic journey where we are trying to find both within our personal lives and our workspace, things that are meaningful to us. So meaningful to us in a very, very personal way. So with that, we end this podcast. Thank you, everyone. Everyone, thank you so much.